This episode of Propaganda is sponsored by She's Beautiful When She's Angry. The first documentary about the women's liberation movement, She's Beautiful When She's Angry, is a critically acclaimed film that's now available to own. Featuring the women who made change happen then and continue to bang the drum of equality today. Look for it on DVD, iTunes, Amazon Video, and wherever you watch movies. She's Beautiful When She's Angry.com. This is Propaganda, the feminist response to pop culture podcast. I'm Sarah Merck. Think about the last time you volunteered for something. Maybe it was pitching in to help your local high school with a fundraiser. Or maybe it was cooking a week's worth of food for a friend who just had a baby. Or maybe it was something a little more high stakes and sacrificial. I volunteer as tribute. Uh, I believe we have a volunteer. Uh, Mr. Mayor, I need to get out of here. Whatever it was, volunteering is a big part of our lives and our economy. The United States government actually keeps official data on volunteering. According to their stats, there's a gender disparity in volunteers. Women are more likely than men to volunteer. Overall, about 25% of Americans do some kind of volunteer work over the course of the year. And all that volunteering adds up to a huge percentage of our economy. All those hours are worth about $239 billion, one analysis found. But that's not even counting all the unpaid work that people, primarily women, do in the home. In the United States, women spend about four hours a day doing unpaid work, compared with about 2.5 hours for men. In-home duties like cleaning clothes and making dinner and taking care of kids aren't even seen in our society as volunteering. It's just seen as what you're expected to do. And a lot of that expectation has to do with how we, as a society, don't value the work of women or see caretaking as a crucial task worth compensating with dollars. So when I think about the role that volunteering plays in our economy, I get kind of bummed. A lot of the unpaid work that we all do shouldn't be unpaid. But there's also a lot to celebrate about volunteering. Millions of us volunteer for things because we're passionate about them. We want to make our communities better. We want to get shit done, even if we can't get paid for it. And a lot of the times it's nice to be part of projects where money isn't the motivating factor of everyone involved. It's cool to be able to make something and contribute to causes and projects I care about, even if I don't have a lot of cash. Like, I don't have the time to take on a second job, but I can pitch in with my body and my brain to help support things I care about. That's awesome. So in our capitalist society, volunteering really cuts both ways. It's a sign of what work isn't valued financially, and it's a sign of how much we humans care about helping each other out. On today's episode, we're bringing you four stories about people who are going above and beyond, people who are pouring their time and energy into projects that they care about. We hear from a teenage farm worker and activist in Washington, Muslim community organizers in Michigan, and the director of a new film about abortion clinics in the South. Stay tuned. If you get a problem, I don't get what it is. If you need a hand, I can show you this. I can help. I got two strong arms. I can help. It would sure do me good to do you good, let me help. It's a fact that people can know When I was in college, I spent a summer in Ecuador volunteering as an English teacher in Quito. This trend of more privileged folks, that would be me, combining international travel with volunteering is so common that it has a name, 
voluntourism. Volunteerists are well-meaning, passionate people who want to make a difference in the world. But there can also be problems when people from countries with money drop into poorer places with the goal to help the locals. This dynamic brings up issues of power and who really benefits from volunteer labor. It's also complicated by how volunteers can sometimes use their do-gooderness as a little more than a photo op, posing with orphans, for example, to show off their altruism on Facebook. Journalist and attorney Rafia Zukaria explores these issues in an essay called The White Tourist's Burden that was originally published on Al Jazeera. Here, she reads it for propaganda. My friend Jack likes to tell his favorite story about a summer he spent volunteering in Colombia. He recounts that story any time he's handed the opportunity, at parties, lunch meetings, and airports. He highlights varying facets of the story on different occasions. The snake he found in his tent, his camaraderie with the locals, and his skills at haggling. The message to his audience is clear. I chose hardship and survived it. If designer clothes and fancy cars signal material status, his story of a deliberate embrace of poverty and its discomforts signals superiority of character. As summer looms, many Americans, college students, retirees, and others who stand at the cusp of life changes will make similar choices in search of transformational experiences. An industry exists to make these easier to make, the volunteerism business. A volunteerist is someone like Jack, who wishes to combine exotic vacation travel with volunteer work. Volunteer tourists can build schools in Uganda, houses in Haiti, or hug orphans in Bali. In all of these situations, the operational equation is the same. Wealthy Westerners can do a little good, experience something that their affluent lives do not offer, and as in Jack's case, have a story to tell that places them in the ranks of the kind-hearted and worldly-wise. As admirably altruistic as it sounds, there is a problem with volunteerism. The singular focus on the volunteer's quest for an experience, rather than the recipient community's actual needs. There is a cost associated with such an endeavor. 2010 report by the Human Sciences Research Council, based in Pretoria, South Africa, analyzed the thriving AIDS orphan tourism business in that country. Under this program, well-to-do tourists signed up to build schools, clean houses, and restore riverbanks, and acted as caregivers to AIDS orphans for a few weeks. The orphans' conditions were effectively transformed into a boutique package in which saving them yields profits from tourists. But the report discussed how foreigners' ability to pay for the privilege of volunteering crowded out local workers who could have been paid to do the same work. Dorinda Elliott, a contributing editor at the Condé Nast Traveler website, wrote about a failed volunteerism project in Haiti 
Dorinder's article details how a set of houses built by an American church never ended up helping the people it was supposed to help. Buoyed by the imagined nobility of their endeavor, the builders failed to consider the needs of the would-be inhabitants. The uneducated families that moved into the houses lacked professional skills and employment to improve their conditions and continued to beg for food long after the tourists had left. A community-directed approach instead of a tourist-determined one would have invested in helping the families develop skills necessary to tackle their primary need, poverty. Typically, other people's problems seem simpler, uncomplicated, and easier to solve than those of one's own society. In this context, the decontextualized hunger and homelessness in Haiti, Cambodia, or Vietnam is an easy moral choice. Unlike the problems of other distant societies, the failing inner city schools in Chicago, or the haplessness of those living on the fringes in Detroit, is connected to a larger political narrative. Simple terms, the lack of knowledge of other cultures makes them seem easier to help. This imagined simplicity of other people's problems presents a contrast to the intangible burdens of post-industrial societies. Western nations are full of well-fed individuals plagued by less explicit hardships, like the disintegration of communities. The burdens of manic consumption are not as easily pitied as crumbling shanties and begging babies. Against this landscape, volunteerism presents an escape, a rare encounter with an authenticity sorely missed, hardship palpably and physically felt for a small price. Despite its flaws, the educational aspect of volunteerism's cross-cultural exchange must be saved, made better instead of being rejected completely. Natalie Jessianka, a columnist at the Daily Muse, offers future volunteers some direction on making a real impact on their trips. She emphasizes the need for the volunteer to adapt to the culture, to be flexible, relevant, and realistic. In addition to fostering mutual understanding, this would create less domineering, non-judgmental volunteers who are not obsessed with the pursuit of the emotional highs and the photo ops of the altruism they paid for. It would also enable the dislocation of the stereotype that finds need and want in other and exotic places by revealing the same dimensions within their own locales and the connections between the marginalized of here and the excluded of there. If Jack and other volunteers could do such simple due diligence, their efforts would be more meaningful beyond good party stories and Facebook profile pictures. And more important, promote a more robust global interconnectedness than what exists today. by Rafia Zucaria was originally published at Al Jazeera. 
Rafia is a columnist for Dawn Pakistan in the Read Other Women series at Boston Review. She sits on the jury of the Rusty Radiator Awards that protest the use of stereotypes in humanitarian and development work. You're listening to Propaganda, the feminism and pop culture podcast. Today, we're hearing stories of volunteers, of people who go above and beyond to help out their community. Next up, we have a story about a high school student learning to become an activist and a volunteer in her own community. This story was reported by a teenager named Rahelia Sanchez, who produced it as part of a cool youth radio workshop called Radio Active that's based out of Seattle station KUOW. Every summer, the station gives eight teens the chance to spend six weeks working as radio journalists. Here's what Rahelia made. Alicia Santos started picking strawberries when she was seven years old. Her mother was working at Hayton Farms in Skagit County, so she went along with her mother. Back then, when I was seven, I just remember making like a bucket or maybe like, you know, staying in the row for like the whole day. But I don't really put the effort to be picking because I feel like, why am I even picking? It's so hot. I can relate to Alicia. I've been working in the field since I was young. I still do. After sophomore year of high school, Alicia went back to the fields, picking strawberries at Sakuma Brothers Farm. She was a lot faster than she was when she was young, because this time she felt like she needed money for her family, and family is very important to her. I was asked a lot, how long have you been working the strawberries or like how long have you been picking these berries because you're so fast? I was happy I actually received money and I was happy I was in like picking berries. Alicia didn't go to school until mid-September, a few weeks after school started because she was putting work first. I went back to school, but I still didn't want to leave the job. So every like, you know, the week I will go to school in the weekend, like Saturday and Sunday, I will always go like, to pick the blackberries. She was picking blackberries until October. Things aren't always easy for her. When she comes back from work, she feels pain in her back from bending over too much. Day in the morning, it's harder to wake, like, because you know you have already, like, worked all day, morning through, like, night. Next thing you look, you're in, you're in the field again. It just goes over and over again. Alicia started feeling frustrated. She heard other farm workers say they weren't happy with their pay. So she joined an organization called Familias Unidas por la Justicia. This means Families United for Justice. She transformed into an organizer and started attending marches targeting Sakuma brothers, like this one in July. Recently, Sakuma brothers has made changes to the way workers are paid, but Familias Unidas is still not satisfied. Alicia's responsibility in Familias Unidas is to hear other farm workers' stories and present them. She speaks mostly at colleges and universities to inform students about the farm workers' needs. I've, you know, explained to them, like, what I want to know, and I tell them that I want to know their story of how they're, like, being treated or how they are as a farm worker. I get a lot of answers saying, okay, they accept to share their story because they know they want their story to be let out and to be heard. Being in the organization, Alicia has gained a lot of skills and is still learning. She learned public speaking. Before, she was too shy to be in front of an audience. Now, she is starting to get used to it. Some of her classmates at Sidgwally High School don't understand where she's coming from. I go to a school where there's like 
know where they don't understand about farm working or they don't understand anything about like uh, like you know like people that work hard in the fields for money for alicia all these things are hard to do all at the same time she's a student a farm worker and a committee member but this doesn't stop her she loves what she does because she's doing it for her family but now her family is bigger than before there's a lot of responsibilities but to me this is like actually like a big responsibility because it's full of people that have lives full inside them. And for me, it can be hard because like I help on the side, I help my family. But on the side, I have to help like those like farm workers. But to me, they are a family. So I call both sides family. I call them all family. Alicia still works in the fields every summer. She is a senior in high school this year and looking forward to graduating and going off to college. She wants to study labor and learn more about unions. For Radioactive, I'm Rogelia Sanchez. That was teenage radio producer Rogelia Sanchez interviewing Alicia Santos as part of KUOW's Radioactive Youth Radio program. Awesome. In this political season, many different groups have become the targets of hateful rhetoric. And it's not just Trump. Several Republican candidates have tried to score political points by scaring up hatred of Muslims. Jeb Bush, for example, said he would sign off on accepting Syrian refugees to the United States so long as they're Christian. And Donald Trump boasts of wanting to ban Muslims outright, while at the same time arguing that Christianity is under siege. Comments like this have helped fuel discrimination and violence against Muslim Americans. Mosques around the country, from Texas to my hometown of Portland, Oregon, have seen right-wing protesters turn up at their doorsteps. Renee Gross of Making Contact Radio brings us this story from a mosque in rural Michigan, where leaders are organizing community members to get more involved in the election campaign. In the face of hatred, some of Michigan's Muslim residents are volunteering and organizing to change the state of politics. I had a friend, she came up to me, and she was like, you know, I was wondering, is, is ISIS like Islam? Is it real Islam? High school student Hadisha Mohammed is one of the many people who came to the Muslim community of Western Suburbs Mosque to talk about Islamophobia tonight. That's because tonight is February 12, 2016, the year anniversary of the shooting of three Muslim students near the University of North Carolina. Yasir Kogali facilitates the discussion. We have to start with being able to talk to each other, and that is where we have to start. Since the attack, though, hateful rhetoric has increased. Hanina Ekment is a concerned mother at the mosque. When my son comes to me and says, it really doesn't matter what you do, they're going to hate us anyway. But there's a byproduct of the hate. I think his mobilizing a lot of people makes our job a lot easier. That's Dr. Muzamil Ekmet. He grew up coming to this mosque and has tried hard to make sure that people know the politicians in the community. This hasn't always been easy. Many of the people who first started the mosque were immigrants who came here in the 70s and 80s. They didn't always have the time to meet with politicians or volunteer for campaigns. Muzamel knows this firsthand. He's the child of immigrants. 
I, it's a cliche to say, boy, my parents came with nothing uh, off the boat or off the airplane and worked hard. And But, in for, you know, that is really the truth. They came. They're so focused on making a living, making sure that their kids had a good education uh, and were safe that I don't think they were that focused on politics. Neither was the mosque. Again, in the early 2000s, there was still a lot of... Uh, discussion as to whether Muslims really, sh- uh, the American Muslim community really should get involved in politics. And politics was thought of as distasteful, it thought of as, you know, you'd have to compromise values. It was difficult for members to decide what values they should champion. Similar to other religious communities, they had both conservative and progressive ideals. It's very tough to figure out which ones take a priority. Are you going to fight against homelessness, make sure everyone has affordable health care? Are you going to Uh, go after fighting abortion or same-sex marriage or or things like that. A lot of the community simply stayed out of the political realm. Then everything changed. It happened during September 11th and uh, and the uh, horrible tragedies of that time. The media was shining a negative light on Islam, but members of the mosque wanted to show the public that they were engaged American citizens. Only they found their presence wasn't always welcomed in politics. When people try and enter the traditional Republican parties and the caucuses and the party meetings, and we've had people who've done this, uh, they are alone, uh, they're often uh, ostracized, uh, they clearly are left out, um, and uh, uh, even though they might share some specific conservative values, uh, it's, they are not felt like they belong and they're not welcome. Some feel these experiences in the Republican Party are shifting the mosque to the left. Now they're becoming very liberal. That's Sibira Ekmet. She's Muzamil's mother. Sibira has strong feelings about who she wants to vote for this year. So, of course, not the Republican this time. Sibira has voted Republican in the past. In 2000, she voted for Bush. They shared many of the same conservative values, like being against same-sex marriage. But Sibira wasn't happy with Bush's foreign policy. She wasn't happy about how he treated minorities or poor people, and she wasn't happy with the economy. Because of the war and all those things, uh, it was really worst. For the average people, it really pinched your, you know, pocket. Siberia voted for Obama in 2008. She's been pleased with his presidency. Now she's voting for Hillary Clinton. She, being a woman, she's very sensitive to the issues of the families and raising the kids and education and economy and all those things. And second thing is she's very experienced in the foreign policy. Siberia still disagrees with Hillary on some points, but she says she has to look at the bigger picture. And for right now, Republicans are much worse. To me, I think they're creating hate. They didn't even stop Donald Trump being a presidential presidential nominee. He shouldn't be able to create the hate in this country. Like It's not good for anybody, not for Muslim, not for Jews, not for Christian. Fighting back against the hate is a major reason why Siberia gets involved. We have to go to the town halls meeting so they know it. They know Muslims are here too, and we we are the normal people. We are not you know, we are not terrorists, and we have the rights too. The one who who come here to live here, this this is our country, this is our country. Though we have a different religion. As CNN projects that Donald Trump will be the winner of the New Hampshire Republican primary. Dr. Syed Taj sees America as his home too. He is watching the New Hampshire primary results with his family. For me. The reason I entered politics was that I'm not different than any one of you.
Taj was born in India and immigrated to the United States in the 70s. But he found few people like him represented in politics. So in 2007, he ran for city council. I was everything myself, campaigner. So I'll come home five o'clock, put it in my walking shoe, and I start going knocking doors. Some people said, what are you? I said, Democrat. They shut the door on me. Some people said, oh, you're a doctor. Oh, we like to vote for you. Another said, normally we vote only conservative, but since you are at my door, we'll vote for you too. Taj ended up being the first ever Muslim elected to his town city council and the first Democrat to be elected there in 30 years. He did so well that he decided to run for Congress in 2012. He was leading in the polls until... What do we really know about Syed Taj? We know he relies on political support and funding from the Democratic Socialists of America. We know his extremist contributors include the Council for American-Islamic Relations, named as an unindicted co-conspirator in funding the terrorist group Hamas. And we know Syed Taj wants to advance Muslim power in America. Syed Taj, too extreme for Michigan, too extreme for... Taj says the ad took quotes out of context to play on the public's fear of Muslims. Even though Taj had been leading in the polls, he ended up losing the election. But he isn't stopping. He's running for Canton supervisor this year. As for the mosque, it isn't slowing down either. Just as the uh, black churches were so integral to the civil rights era in mobilizing people, the mosques are similarly very important in mobilizing the Muslim community. Muzamil is working with the mosque to connect members with politicians and make sure everyone is voting. He's also helping his family do more. Last election cycle, he set up his mother at a phone bank to make phone calls for a local state representative. He told his mom about a way she could be especially helpful. Why don't you make phone calls? Call your friends up. We have phone lists that they've been able to put together on names that sound Arabic or Indian, and and they will listen to you more than they listen to some other uh, intern who doesn't speak the language, and that's what they've done. His mother found that when she made these calls, people really did trust her opinion. They said, are you sure this person will be good for us? They're going to represent us. They're not. I say yes. We did something, you know, we did the interview, we know the person and all these things. Then says, okay, we'll do it. (laughs) This type of political engagement not only helps make a difference in the community, it also makes a difference in the lives of immigrants doing the outreach. Muzamil has seen this with his parents. And when they start to become politically involved and people come to them to ask for votes or feel like they need to send them something in the mail or call them, they're sort of taken aback and say, wow, you really do need me and you really do value me. And I think that has really done, uh, done wonders in getting them feeling more involved, feeling more American. Still, feeling American isn't enough. The members of the mosque know they have to prove they are American to others. At the Islamophobia meeting, there's a consensus among many that this isn't fair. They shouldn't need to prove anything. But for now, they feel they have no other choice. For Making Contact, I'm Renee Gross in Canton, Michigan.
we have exciting news. So many of our propaganda listeners wrote in to ask how you could support the show that we created a brand new Beehive membership level, the Podcast Pollinators. Join fellow listeners as a member of the Podcast Pollinators, and when you do, you will receive a special mug, a subscription to Bitch Magazine in print and digital, a snazzy sticker, and Listen Bitch, a brand new monthly roundup of all our podcast shows and music reviews delivered straight to your inbox. Become a podcast pollinator today at bitchmedia.org slash pollinators. That's bitchmedia.org slash pollinators. When filmmaker Don Porter arrived in Jackson, Mississippi in the spring of 2013, she didn't plan to make a movie about abortion. Porter, who was trained as a lawyer but became an award-winning documentary filmmaker, was hard at work on a different project about surveillance of activists during the civil rights movement. And she thought that the issue of abortion rights was settled, squared away with the 1973 decision Roe v. Wade. But then, skimming the local paper one day, Porter came across a startling statistic. In all of Mississippi, a state with more than half a million women of reproductive age, there was only one abortion clinic. She was so stunned that she called up the clinic and asked if she could come learn more. The result is the film Trapped, which opened nationally on March 4th. Here's a clip from the trailer. The legislature passed a bill that they knew that we could not comply with. And that was the function of the bill. The function is a trap. In the past three years, there have been hundreds of restrictions passed, more than in the past decade. These rules don't add anything to the safety of women. This is our pharmacy. The drugs always expire because we never use them. I don't know that we've ever used any of these things in this clinic ever. They chop away piecemeal at reproductive rights. There's a two or three week waiting list for a procedure where time is of the essence. I remember getting a call once from a patient. She said, what if I tell you what I have in my kitchen cabinet and you tell me what I can do? Trapped explores the lives of doctors, nurses, and clinic volunteers who dedicate their days to making abortion safe and accessible. In recent years, their work has gotten harder. Across the country, clinics have seen wave after wave of so-called TRAP laws. That stands for Targeted Regulations of Abortion Providers. TRAP. Since 2010, state legislatures have passed over 288 such laws. As Trapped shows, keeping our reproductive rights intact has been a labor of love, with both volunteers and medical professionals pouring in their time and resources to help women access safe abortions. In this interview with Andrea Chase of the radio show Behind the Scenes, filmmaker Don Porter talks about the making of Trapped. So I was in Mississippi, I was in Jackson, and I was making a film about how state government passed laws and funded spies to infiltrate the NAACP. So I was kind of in that headspace. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but then uh, I like to read the local papers when I'm doing a project. And so I read that there was one clinic in the entire state of Mississippi. And I was just so taken aback by that. And I felt like I am a pro-choice person. I'm politically active. I'm politically aware. I read the newspapers. How did I not know this? So I did what any sane person would do. I called them up and said, can I come over? And I met Dr. Parker that day. And, you know, so here sometimes, you know, there are, the documentary gods are with you. And so here was this lovely African-American man. And he told me that he was flying from Chicago to work in clinics in Mississippi, Georgia, Alabama, 
he was also working in Pennsylvania at the time because of the huge shortage of doctors who would provide abortions. Something about that just really visually grabbed me, the idea that someone was flying in, you know, kind of finger in the dike. And so that's that's where it began. And I asked if I could start following him. And um, we had some more conversations about it. But he said yes. And what was your biggest preconceived notion that was exploded? while you were following these these fine human beings, these really dedicated individuals who are also people of faith. We should yeah. emphasize that. You know, there were so many, and I'm almost mortified at all of the... You don't realize how much popular culture penetrates your imagination until you're faced with reality. And so here I am, a pro-choice person, and the first shoot we did... My cameraman, Derek Wiesenhan, said, if Dr. Parker and the patient let me film a procedure, I want to do that. And I was like, oh, no, no, I'm not ready for that. And then I thought, you know, what was I so concerned about? What was I so afraid of? And so he went and they filmed and it was a really tiny room. So it was just Derek and Dr. Parker in because Derek said, well, I'm going. (laughs) You can stay here with your worries. And they came out five minutes later and Derek looked at me and we both have two kids. And he goes, that ain't no baby. (laughs) And I thought, you know, we have gotten so far from talking about the medicine of abortion that I was almost one of those people expecting a tiny little rubber baby to yeah, pop out. Yeah. And, you know, the, the medical reality is so far from, you know, it's like a period. So it, it was really important to kind of go back to first principles, which is the medicine, and to start thinking about what does a doctor believe is medically necessary and safe. And, and so I had to really recalibrate to start thinking that way. And that was not because I was, I think I was, you know, I'm, I was politically pro-choice, and I needed to be medically pro-choice. Talk about the larger implications. Once government starts getting involved in the medicine of abortion and reproductive rights, what's to stop them from getting involved in other areas of health care? Well, nothing. Yeah. <laughs> um, and in fact, you know, a number of these laws are companion bills to some states Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, they also oppose IUD. They oppose IVF. These are the same states that have passed personhood bills. Fetus is a person. Potential life is is sacrosanct. But I think for me, this film, it's about so much more than abortion. It's about the political mechanism by which people's reproductive lives and personal lives are controlled by people who have different opinions. Which brings up the separation of church and state, which is something more observed in the breach these days. (laughs) You know, it it is, and um, I'm a northerner. You know, I'm from, I was born in Brooklyn, I was raised in New York City, um, and we like our religion private. (laughs) And it's anything but private in the South. Um, And so that, I think that, to go back to your earlier question, that was another Um, kind of feeling I had to wrestle with because, you know, just like it's unseemly to ask people. It's like in the North, it's unseemly to ask what your religious background is. People might volunteer it, but it's not something we ask. Whereas in the South, and when I was filming Gideon's Army, I sat in on a jury selection where the prosecutor not only asked people what their church was, but how often they went as a voir dire question. And everybody happily volunteered, well, my home church is this, but this is the church I go to. And, you know, it really struck me that I needed to kind of 
check my bias and make sure that I had an open and respectful approach to religion. And that ended up becoming a really important piece of the film because it was important to my characters and their religious faith. You know, Dr. Parker will say, I don't do abortions in spite of my religion. I do it because of my religion. His God is a loving God. And I think, you know, that's in my Protestant upbringing that very much is in accord with how I was raised, which is it's a God of forgiveness. It's a God of loving, a God of comfort. Yes, yes, not a God of screaming at you as you're walking in. I love that in front of one of the uh, the clinics that you filmed, there is a sign that says Jesus doesn't shame women. Mm-hmm. And yet these protesters do. You know, they do, and um, and they, they do so much more. The, the vitriol um, that Dr. Parker is subjected to one of the protesters called him a filthy Negro abortionist who's committing black genocide. So the racial, um, and you know, this, uh, I, I wanted to, and I see so clearly that these are not spontaneous talking points. You know, we see across the country, we had the protester who yelled like, Black Lives Matter. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I didn't see her in Detroit. So, you know, I think this is a talking point for the anti-choice evangelicals because they know that so many black and Latina women are having abortion for all kinds of reasons, that this has become a very effective social stigma talking point. And in fact, Dr. Parker leads seminars with white doctors about how they are not committing black genocide. But the need for that kind of seminar, I think, is instructive. The laws themselves that are being passed in in these different states, they all come from the same source. It's not a spontaneous generation. No. no. So along the way, Sari Gilman um, is the wonderful editor of this film. And she kept saying, is there some kind of coordination happening? Because, you know, we were looking, we were actually looking at the different laws in different states. And we were doing that to make a graphics because I, I was like, we have to be accurate. We have to have the right number of states. So we had done a lot of research. And I was, you know, I'm just not a conspiracy person, despite the fact that I'd made a movie about conspiracy <laughs> in the South. That's but, why you're um, the perfect person to make the film about conspiracy. Because I, I don't, I, you know, I think that I think that very few people are actually can get their act together enough to make the kind of conspiracy come to life. So then we found this group, Americans United for Life. They came to being in the wake of Roe v. Wade in in the 70s, and their sole objective is to overturn Roe. So unsuccessful in doing that, what they have been successful in is drafting model laws, and and they are laws that are passed around. So they started with personhood bills; those are you know effective at the state level, but struck down. Sort places. Then you have abortions illegal at six weeks. That was struck down. 15 weeks, struck down. 20 weeks. That one was a keeper. And so you have a number of states where, including Texas, um, including many other states where abortions outlawed after 20 weeks, which means that the conversation has automatically shifted not to abortions illegal always, but to there is a cutoff. You know, so that's the first huge restriction. And then you see, along with the legal campaign, is the social campaign. So these laws are being passed in a climate where we have this huge, at the state level, shift to the right. We have people who have protested and are aghast at the Obama presidency. You know, he's elected in 2008. In 2010, you have the Sarah Palin Tea Party 
uh, people elected at the state level. And one of the first things they do is start passing those model laws drafted by Americans United for Life. And now those laws are picking up steam. And so we see 27 states around America, there's some form of these anti-choice laws. It's mind-boggling. It is. I mean, and, and that's, I think it's important to recognize, while this is certainly a threat to abortion rights, this is a political, systematic approach to depriving millions of people of rights on all sorts of levels. And, you know, voting matters. Who's in the Supreme Court matters. So Texas is the state with the second largest state with women of reproductive age, 5.4 million women. Before the laws regulating the clinics, before the the law basically makes them become mini hospitals, and it's extremely expensive or sometimes impossible to comply with. So before the law, there were about 40 clinics in Texas. Immediately after, there were 19. If the law is upheld, there will be nine, and most of those will be centered in cities, in busy cities. So there will be hundreds of miles where you will be able to go without any abortion clinic. And we've discussed it's a real health issue. The numbers of women self-aborting has risen. There's a study that between 100,000 and 240,000 Texas, just in Texas, have tried to self-abort. People are hemorrhaging, people are throwing themselves downstairs, emergency rooms. It's really a pre-row situation, which is exactly what Americans United for Life, that is that is exactly their intent. We have a generation of women now who don't remember that time. I don't think they really understand what life was like before Roe, although these economically challenged women in Texas are finding out yeah. the hard way. Yeah. You know, I mean, I'm just the generation after, so I've only ever known since I've been a sexually active person and since I've only ever known a world where Roe existed. And that's why it is so stunning to me (laughs) that we are here. There was a really interesting campaign called Ask Your Mother, where people are recounting. And the stories that we are hearing, one woman spoke about just this week. Uh, I was talking to her and she said her mother had had an abortion in a barn with a doctor who had a gun up against the door because they knew it was illegal. And if they were raided by the sheriff's department, there was going to be violence. You know, my grandfather was a, a physician and used to travel south. He lived in New York. Our family lived in New York, but he would go south in the summers. And one of the things he would do is abortions. He and his brother were both physicians. They were both black. And word got around that they would do abortions and the white women started going to them. So it was it was okay when the black women were being seen by Doc, but when the white women started to go, the local men came to their house with guns and threatened them and there was a, there was a showdown. So it's not that far removed in our past that these stories, but what I see is a real effort to disenfranchise and to disempower women of all economic backgrounds. Uh, and I think it's dangerous as well as outrageous. One thing I wanted to bring up is um, there there used to be a group called Operation Rescue. It mm-hmm. has changed its name, but it is... Uh, to Operation Save America. Operation Save America. It's made up of people who are known terrorists. There are Can people, we put it that way? I mean, there are people in Operation Rescue who were convicted of crimes against clinics for attempting to bomb clinics and making threats against abortion providers. And Operation, I call them Operation Rescue now because I think that the PR job, you know, part of what we need to do in this conversation is talk about the truth. Operation Rescue now, they choose a clinic to target and they call 
call on their armies of God, as they put it, to come. So in our film, they chose the Montgomery Clinic to come protest, and they do that for clinics around the country. And what usually happens is there's this concerted protest, but um, the violence and threat levels against the clinics always increases. And so, in fact, it wasn't connected to Operation Rescue, but in our film, right before the film was released at Sundance, the Colorado murders happened. Sources say the 57-year-old drove to Planned Parenthood in this silver pickup, carrying a duffel bag full of AK-style rifles and handguns, opening fire. After surrendering, he made rambling, hostile comments toward Planned Parenthood and President Obama. Planned Parenthood has become... So we went into the Sundance Film Festival having to hire private security. You know, we had personal bodyguards. They did bomb sniffing at each of the the screenings. So, you know, the dangers are real. And you sometimes... It's not that you forget, but you try not to let that control what you do. But we take the threats very seriously. I also want to talk about, in in Supreme Court rulings and and judicial rulings, the the phrase undue burden Mm -hmm. is used as far as you don't want to pass laws that create an undue burden on women seeking an abortion. But that's so nebulous. That's right. Yeah. And that is really, you know, the heart of this case is whether laws that regulate the clinics that have in uh, practical terms being impossible to comply with and so have led to clinic closures, whether that presents an undue burden to a woman in Texas seeking an abortion. So on the record, on the merits, this should be a really easy case. There's such a clear, um, although Justice Kennedy did ask about the relation between the clinic closures and the law, asked if it was a coincidence. So I think that there's a lot of evidence in the record. You know, if this isn't an undue burden, I'm not quite sure what would be. Um, So the case was just argued on March 2nd, and a decision is expected at the end of June. So for the film, one of the objectives, one of our objectives is to be in as many theaters and as many communities across the country as possible. And then we have a big wind up with uh, something we're super proud of. which is our airing on independent lens in mid-June. So it will be in every home in the country. But, you know, with this presidential year, it's a real fight, struggle to keep in the conversation. Dr. Parker doesn't wear a vest to protect himself. Were you at all tempted to put one on while you were filming? Um, I wasn't really tempted to put a vest on, but... I I will say it certainly, you cross a parking lot and every once in a while I would think, I'm kind of out in the open here. You certainly don't get in your car without looking under it or looking around and seeing who's there. You know, I was making this film over a few years, over two and a half years, and I realized at some point you do, you really do feel love for your subjects because you're with them so much. And I realized I was not asking him in particular about safety. So it was on our very last interview. And I said, I realize I'm not asking you about this. And I, I really need to. And he said in his very, you know, measured, kind way, he doesn't wear a vest. And I started to cry. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, you know, so that's the audio. So we use that audio is basically his response to me and a conversation that he unfortunately has to have with his family and anybody who cares about him. But later, what you know, what he said is they shot Dr. Tiller in the head. If people want to kill me, they will kill me. So he spends his life right sizing the risk. He's like, I want to live. I am not reckless, but I also can't be controlled by people who are irrational. And, you know, I think he certainly is brave, but I think, you know, 
when people ask about the conversation between pro-choice and anti-choice people, I always think um, the anti-choice people get to express their opinions and don't think that someone's going to shoot them. And wouldn't that be nice if we had that same luxury yeah. of not feeling like we were going to die? <laughs> Don Porter, thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you. It was a real pleasure. Andrea Chase of Behind the Scenes talking with Dawn Porter. Keep an eye out for her film, Trapped. You've been listening to Popaganda, the feminism and pop culture podcast. As we head into this election year, it's crucial to think about what jobs and people and projects get money in our society and what work is expected to be unpaid. But pitching in for a cause you care about helps make our communities stronger in so many ways. If it wasn't for the people giving up their precious time to support farm worker rights or reproductive rights or a more open and inclusive democracy, the world would certainly be a worse place. Huge thanks, by the way, to all the people who volunteer for Bitch. From the students who organize on campus to bring our speakers out to lead lectures and workshops, to the folks who stop by our office to stuff envelopes. Your work and time and labor is, as always, Deeply appreciated. Propaganda is produced by the team here at Bitch Media. Bitch is an independent, nonprofit feminist media organization. We're entirely funded by our Beehive members, subscribers, and like-minded sponsors. So if you like today's episode of Propaganda, please become a member online at bitchmedia.org today. Let us know you liked the show in your order comments. Our jingle is by Mux and Owen Worker. Additional music was provided by Blue Dot Sessions. Look up their creative and minimalist sounds by going to Google and typing in sessions.blue. And the show is produced by Alex Ward at the studios of X-Ray FM, an independent radio station in Portland, Oregon. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.